Father, thank you for a new property. We, we, we know without a doubt every square inch of that concrete and asphalt and those mighty iron pillars and those beams, every square inch is owned by you. And Lord, we tried our best for 15 years to say, we're not buying, we're not purchasing, and you overruled, O sovereign God, that's your property. You invited us, and it was a joy to clean up briars and bushes and poison ivy and poison oak and to sweep and and to do it with your church, you're redeemed. And to meet people whom we can share the gospel with. Thank you that we get to plant our lives on that, in that part of Spartanburg. And from that part of Spartanburg, we get to fly on airplanes to Amman, Jordan. As you deepen our financial ability to impact the globe. We've never needed you more. We've never been... We're older as a church, and yet we've never been smaller in our strength. We're children in need of a father to do something that we've never seen you do. Come, Lord Jesus, in the power of the Spirit. Hold us. Glorify your name. Make your name great. Make your name great in Spartanburg. In the families of this church, they're hurting. Individually, our hearts are dealing with big stuff. We failed this week. Apart from Christ, we're dirty. We've been mean. Our, our thoughts have been impure, and we come to Jesus. We come to the cross. We want blood. That's why we do in the Lord's Supper. We want blood to clean us. So thank you for the chance to observe the Lord's Supper and believe again the gospel that a sinless Savior has died and risen again for our full pardon from sin. We believe it. Now thanks for letting us hear it again of how much you love us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, what a joy it is to see that word um, on our screen today. No, that's not the Italian prophet Malachi. That is the final uh, of the 12 minor prophets found in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Um, and so we begin studying the prophets, uh, the, the minor prophets of the Old Testament um, in October of 22nd of last year. And so now we've made our way to the final, the, the 12th of the, of the minor prophets. You know what I love about this church more than anything else is that you don't make me tell you when I'm going to, like, you don't make me tell you when I'm going to be finished with Malachi. There's no reason for me to tell you. I mean, we've got the rest of earth. I mean, why should I be forced to preach according to a calendar? I just don't understand that. So thank you that you don't understand that either. So we may be here two weeks. I know we're not going to be done with it today. The, I love Malachi, and uh, you're going to find this really interesting. I think, now that we're at the 12th, I think he's the most feisty of all. 
The last time I preached from Malachi was in the 1980s, outside of Augusta, Georgia, at a church. And uh, some of you weren't even alive then. I don't even know if I was alive then, but it says in my notes I preached in Malachi in the 1980s. Uh, the book of Malachi takes place about a hundred years after a group of Jews that were exiled. They had been sent away to live in another land. After they returned to their homeland and rebuilt their temple. And the, that's an interesting thing. Let me give you a little riddle. Um, in a hundred years of coming back home after suffering and in, in being in, a, in another place, what can you do in a hundred years? Well, the answer is, a hundred years gives you plenty of time to forget about God. Hmm. Which is exactly what happened. Um, I want to give you sort of a... Let me tell you, when I give you dates, Bible dates, please don't go, ugh. Bible dates are sort of like landmarks on a trip. Like when I'm driving to Wilmington, North Carolina, which is between five and six hour drive, and Lisa says, where are you? And I tell her... Um, I just saw um, that big guy south of the border wearing the big hat. Uh, she goes, okay, you're about an hour and a half from Wilmington. You're about three hours from here. So dates tell you how far you've gone, how far you got to go. So they're helpful. So when I give you dates, it lets you know how, how close you are to the coming of Christ and how far away you are from some events that happened. So... So the Jews, who had been exiled in another land like in Iraq, they got to come home in 538 B.C. They were set free. They rebuilt their temple. It was finished in 516 B.C. We just saw that in the book of Zechariah. They, they, they finished. Haggai, Zechariah said, you guys need to rebuild your temple. Yay! Well, not really. Yeah, we don't want to do it, but... We're going to go out and clean up the property on Asheville Highway. We don't really want to do it. We're going to do it. So they, they did it. They rebuilt their temple in 516 B.C., but they did not rebuild the wall. That's a whole other story because they were just sick and tired of having to work. So they didn't really... So then God sent Nehemiah, and that's a whole other story, but you need to understand he does play into this whole rebuilding of the city So Nehemiah is sent in 444 B.C. to say, you guys need to put up a wall because if you don't put up a wall around the city, you know, you have a whole problem with roaches and all sorts of rodents and armies. So you got to have a wall around your city. They rebuilt the wall under the direction of Nehemiah. They got the thing done in 52 days. It's a great story. I can't wait to preach through that book, but I'm definitely saving that one for the new building because that's like... Man, let's take the city. So that's later. All right, Nehemiah, a lot of you don't know this, but Nehemiah was a governor of Jerusalem like Zerubbabel was. But I didn't, I don't know how many people, but he went back to his old job in Babylon. And it was perfectly fine because the king said, come back. I just let you off for a little while. You can't stay. So he went back. When he went back, the city fell apart. And the people just morally, after Nehemiah left, he was a great leader. But you could tell it was declining in Nehemiah 13. Then God raised up Malachi because the people were really starting to 
decline. And so Malachi's ministry is after Nehemiah. Sort of, they, they, started, they were sort of at the same time, but really Malachi takes place about 430 B.C. So let me just tell you, I want you to get a flavor, because a lot of times if you don't get a flavor of a book, it means nothing to you. Here's the flavor of Malachi. We built the temple. Now we, we, we built this, this dumb wall. You said Jesus, you said the Messiah was going to come and his glory was going to come inside this temple, Haggai. And he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah. And we've been sitting, we've been waiting on the, we've been waiting on him to come about 29 days now. He's not come yet. And we've only got about 30 days of waiting in us. And so what, we, so what we think we're going to start doing now is we're going to start bringing our, ch- our church attendance is going to fall off. Men, as men, we're going to start leaving our wives. We're going to start marrying ungodly women. We're going to start bringing diseased animals into church for sacrifices. And we're going to start, our praise songs are going to start being composed of, we don't think God rewards those who wait on Him. That's all the kind of stuff that was going on in the book of of Malachi. Let me give you a list. They doubted God's love. They disrespected God through careless worship. Their leaders did not love truth. Husbands did not care for their wives. The people did not honor God with their money. The people mocked God's justice. So Malachi is raised up. And where we're going to go way far from today is the book ends with Malachi says, oh, you guys want to see justice? You want to see God move? You want to see God come clean house? Woo! He's coming, but he's starting right here in his church. That's where he's coming first. And that's the promise of which is fulfilled when he sends John the Baptist who is the new Elijah, but that's at the end of the book. So he said, I'm coming, but I'm starting right here. I'm going to clean God's house first. All right, so that's the flavor. They'd given up on God, and so they were just living very, very poor, very, very poor lives. So here, that's, that's one thing. Here's another thing. I think you've got to grasp this when you read. It's only four chapters long. You can read it in nine minutes. So it's an easy book to read, but... Here's what I want you to do when you grasp the book. Every time God indicts the people, they come back with, what you talking about? It's great. Six times, six times God says, this is where you're sort of falling in your devotion. And six times, what you talking about? They are so funny. It's not funny, but they, the condition of their hearts is absolutely one of, Defiance. Here's a modern day example. A professor would say to a student, you did not follow the instructions on the project. How did I not follow the instructions on the project? Or maybe closer to home, a parent would say to his child, you have not been keeping your room clean. How have I not been keeping my room clean? Rather than any teachability here, it's defiance. So no matter... What God confronts them with, 
their, their response in each case is, What? What? Y'all don't have a child. Y'all have never had a child say, Why? What? Prove it. Let's look at a few of these. Malachi 1 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, How have you loved us? That's exactly how have you loved us? Malachi 1 6. Where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, How have we despised your name? What you talking about? It's crazy. Malachi 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied you with our words? Malachi 3.13, you have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, what have we said against you? These people have zero teachability in their hearts. I am just astonished when people say the Bible is not relevant to today. This is straight out of our culture. Our culture is, I mean, if there's any one thing that to me typifies our culture, it is a prove it to me culture. Like, you need a Savior. Prove it. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it used to be like we would spend all these times. Um, We'd spend all these times, we'd get all these sophisticated people say, I am going to prove to you that Jesus, excuse me, I push up my glasses. I'm going to prove to you that Jesus was, Jesus was born of a virgin. I'm going to prove to you that, excuse me, I'm going to prove to you that the New Testament manuscripts are reliable. That, that used to be the thing back in the 70s. I'm going to prove to you that there was a, there's a six-day creation. And we had all those things. That used to be the, Now it doesn't matter. New culture says, I don't care if you can tell me that the Bible fell straight out of heaven. Prove to me that I need forgiving of anything. Prove it. That's our culture. Prove it. That's this culture. Prove it. Everything God says, their response is, prove it. So, again, their first one is, oh, here's a little quote. A tender heart will agree with God. You can decide day whether you have a tender heart or defiant heart. A tender heart will agree with God and eventually return. I mean, I always start pretty stubborn. Lisa tell you, I always start pretty pouty. But I come around. A tender heart will uh, agree with God and eventually return. A defiant heart will accuse God and continue resisting. Um, so, let's see if I get this right. All right, so here's, we're only going to do the first one. The first of their accusations, or, you know, their provens today. So we can do the Lord's Supper. Uh, Malachi 1. I have loved you, says the Lord... But you ask, see, this is the prove it. How have you loved us? Prove it. This is amazing. Now, who are these people? They just came back from exile. Now, they went into exile because of their sin. God didn't wipe them out, protected them in Babylon for 70 years, brought them back to their homeland, 
God says, I've loved you. And their response is, prove it. So the way that God answers this is going to shock you. You, you, It's going to catch you off guard the way God says, this is how I've loved you. This is his answer in verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated and have turned his hill country into a wasteland. This is the language of election. This is the language of unconditional choice on God's part to extend kindness to somebody who didn't deserve it. This is two babies with the same mother, twins in the womb, Jacob, Esau, actually Esau a little older in terms of seconds. Therefore, if anybody had in terms of seconds, more rights. If you will talk about rights, it would be Esau. Yet when the twins were born, God said, not to the one that would have maybe some more rights, but to Jacob, the younger, by a few seconds, I choose you. And so, the, so then you, you look at little baby Jacob. You know, a little baby. He's exactly like three seconds old now. And so you ask, what has he done to merit this kindness by God? Anybody here, now, Open, it's open floor for you. Tell me, what has Jacob done to merit the kindness of God? He's three seconds old. God chose him. This is the answer from God to these stubborn people, when they ask, they ask the question, how have you loved us? How can we know you loved us? And God said, based on nothing you ever did in your life, not one thing you ever did for me, I looked down and saw you in your helpless estate like a three-second-old baby, and I gave you all of myself for no reason. I chose you. So whenever the question is asked, what evidence is there that God loves me? The correct answer, the ultimate answer is that God chose me. Nothing good that I brought to him. Like Jacob, 
before I was born, before I'd done anything good or bad. As a matter of fact, let's look at it the other way. God chose Jacob knowing that the majority of what Jacob would do would be bad. That's the better way to look at it. Actually, I just, actually, I just defended Jacob. I really gave, I let him off the hook by letting him only be three seconds old. God chose Jacob with foreknowledge of how bad he would be, and he still chose him. Now it's getting even better. This is a real sign of God's love. Um, earlier this week, I so wish you could know me. I just, I just can't afford to get that transparent from the stage. It, Alexander White was the biographer of John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And, and Alexander White said, he was a pastor, he said, if you knew everything in my heart, when you saw me on the street, you would spit in my face. I wish you knew me. For the sake of rejoicing in God's grace to me. But earlier this week, so whenever I tell you, early, when I tell you a story like this, I'm telling you a story like this in order to magnify God's grace. It's got to come off like this, or I, I told the story wrong. It cannot be about me. I'm hoping, I, I hope I can make this right, clear. Earlier this week, I did a good thing. I adjusted my schedule in a big-time way in order to run an errand, do a favor for somebody. It was an inconvenience to me. And it cost me, it cost me time. It cost me, it cost me a good chunk of a day to, to help somebody that said, would you do this for me? So then I let them know that I had completed their task. Uh, or not their task, but the thing that asked me to do. They write back. They text back when I told them, done. This is the text I got. <laughs> you are the best person I know. There's 7.2 billion people on the earth. And I'm in first place. <laughs> you are the best person I know. And if that wasn't bad enough, the, the, the one hammer blow that beyond this to just really go ahead and, you know, just go bury me, is for real. <laughs> the best person I know. So then... I fire back because I can't stand it. I can't stand it. Because I live with me, and Lisa lives with me, so there's two people, that, and that God, there's three of us that pretty much know the, Jacob. So I wrote back, here's my, here's my text. In all the years that you have known me, and it's been a long time with this human person, in all the years that you have known me, God has still only let 
you see the tip of the iceberg that is pretty. That's all you know of me. All the stuff that's underwater is ugly enough to sink an ocean liner. And then, of course, me being me, I have to send them this, this picture. <laughs> that is your pastor. This is Sunday morning, Richard. This is real, Richard. And I have the joyous, so this is the whole thing of ice. And I have the joyous privilege today to tell you Jesus Christ died for the whole chunk of ice. Pretty and not pretty. Do you remember what the words of the Lord were on the last night of his life to his disciples? You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit. And he told, and he, he told them, I, he told this to people that were going to betray him in a few hours. They were embarrassed about him, ashamed of him, and they were going to abandon him. And he still said, I'm choosing, I choose you. I mean, that's like on a playground. You're choosing the, you're choosing the worst person. The, they're going to help you lose the game. I'm going to choose the worst athlete. He chose people who are going to run away when the game starts. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he, he, did, he chose us when we were not performing, but it, it started long before the cross. You know where I'm going. Long before the cross is when the choice was made before he created the world. Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before, no, let me, I read that way too fast. Verse 4, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before he created, to be adopted as sons according to the kind. According to what? How good we're doing? <laughs> kind intention of his will. So what's all the application? Just one, and then we'll observe the Lord's Supper. When God called you, when God called to you with his electing voice and reached out to you with his electing hand, he made a decision right then and there. He is not going anywhere, ever. When God called to you with his electing voice and reached out to you with his electing hand, he made a decision right then and there. He is not going anywhere, ever. Let's pray. Band.